before the sermon, let me let me uh, let me say a word about Tuesday and the election. Um, the Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, had a, a really wonderfully succinct way to describe um, what it's what it's like for us who are citizens primary citizens of the kingdom of God and secondary citizens of the United States of America and you know, Peter's audience uh, were, were in the Roman Empire. Peter says this, he says, Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, and honor the king. And I love that. I think that's a, a terrific um, um, summary of, of what our attitude should be on Tuesday in particular. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, love the brotherhood. Um, love the community of believers, and uh, love is a duty to our neighbor, so it, it has a, a broader ramification even than the church. But on Tuesday, here's how you should vote. Ready? Dramatic pause. Vote in a way that's going to be most loving for your neighbor. Vote in a way that's going to be most consistent with the kingdom of God coming. Vote in a way that's going to bring more of God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's between you and the Lord. That's between your conscience as a Christian to figure out which candidate's agenda is going to most consistently bring about the, the fruits and the things that are going to be most beneficial to my neighbor. Or in some of your considerations, what's going to be least harmful? And I'm not here to tell you which candidate to vote for, but as a Christian... We're to vote in a way that is most consistent with the kingdom. That's going to be most loving to our neighbor, and therefore, it's a duty. That's how we love our neighbor. Don't not vote. That's not very Christian. Let me jump to the third thing. Um, I want to wait, uh, do fear God at the end, but um, honor the king. What does it mean to honor the king? Well, if voting is a duty, it's also a privilege. And Peter was writing to a bunch of people who had no vote. Uh, it was the Roman Empire, and they were still supposed to honor uh, Caesar. They were supposed to honor the emperor. And uh, we get this remarkable privilege. We live in a country and in an age where we get a voice in who we want to honor. Now, it may be that your candidate wins, and that's great, and you get to honor him. Maybe your candidate loses. You still have to honor the president. That's a Christian duty. But it's a privilege that we get a voice in that. So vote. And vote in a way that knowing, you know, God's given me this gift. I get a voice in who to honor. Last thing, fear God. Fear him first. Make sure your heart's in the right place. What, what are you fearing as you enter that voting booth? Are you trusting that the king's heart is in the, is in the hand of God, that he directs the king's heart like a water course? Is that where your trust is? If you fear God first on Tuesday... It will keep you. It will keep you from anxiety. It will keep you from despair if your candidate loses. If you fear God first, it will keep you from a misplaced hope if your candidate wins. Where is your hope? Where is your primary allegiance? If it is in the Lord, you are on a solid foundation. Praise the Lord. You are not merely a citizen of the United States. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And the king who is King of kings and Lord of lords, loves you and does all things and has already appointed what president we will have for the next four years. Do you know why? For his glory and for the good of the church. So pray and vote 
in that mindset. And now, um, let's see, after talking about politics, I'm going to talk about your money. <laughs> this is a fun Sunday. Aren't you glad you came? Um, especially if you're new. Oh, my gosh, these people. Um, all right, let me, uh, let, me, let me mention where we're at in Malachi. So we're doing this study of, like, the Minor Prophets, the last book of the Minor Prophets, and some of you have never even read Malachi before, and, you know, oh, this is interesting. And, uh, and so Malachi is one of those prophets who's got some stern things to say, but, but he's saying it all in the context of the Lord first and foremost communicating to his people, I have loved you. And now he's going he's gonna to talk about their money. He's going to talk about tithing. Because God wants to get to their hearts. He wants, their, he wants to love them. He wants them to love in return. So uh, with that in mind, I want you to open your wallets to Malachi. I mean, open your Bibles to Malachi 3. All right, that was, that was intentional. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. This is God's Word. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations you call, will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would convince us of your pursuit of our hearts, that you would convince us of the ways that you are loving us, and that we would have ears to hear, hearts that are tender to hear what your word says about our money, about where our treasure is. And Lord, that we would leave here um, more convinced of, uh, of the character and the, uh, the, the quality of our citizenship in heaven that, uh, that we would be about. We would conform more and more uh, to your kingdom uh, because of the gospel's work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. There's an outline in your bulletins, and if you find it helpful, great. Uh, we're going to first talk about how are we to return to the Lord. I know this is, this is a, a, a really famous passage, actually, in the Bible about um, tithing and giving and so on, and so uh, we would be tempted, perhaps, to run straight to the, you know, the message about you know, tithing and so on. But, uh, but it's really about returning to the Lord. It's really about uh, the whole message of Malachi, which is, uh, his, God's people had settled for a, a real shallow, superficial kind of, of relationship with the Lord, a, a really um, false religion, basically. Uh, and we've covered a bunch of ground so far. Uh, and so the question becomes, well, how do we get back to something authentic? And, uh, and that's the question uh, that a lot of people are asking today, too. Things haven't changed much in the past 2,400 years or so on. 
um, because there's a lot of inconsistency, hypocrisy even today in the church. And, and people want to see an authentic expression of Christianity. And I want to be an authentic expression of Christianity. And you want to be an authentic expression of Christianity. And I know that's true of you because we all share the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants us to, to walk and, and live in ways that conform more and more to the kingdom of God and look more and more like Jesus. So we can be those, those bright, brilliant reflections, you know, that we were talking about last week in, in, the, in the silver polish. And people would see Jesus in us. And so how do we return to the Lord? Well, it's really interesting. God doesn't mince words. He says, you know what? The way to your heart is through your wallet. Here's where I'll know if I have your heart. It'll, it'll be uh, indicated by your spending. It'll be indicated by your view of your money. And so, as Malachi is God's mouthpiece, he says, all right, this is how you're going to return. Bring the whole tithe. Bring a tenth of your income. Bring a tenth of your property or possessions uh, to the Lord and, and lay them there. And this is how you're going to test God. I think it's really remarkable. Um, if you were with us last week, there was this language that God was using to say that, uh, that he is a refiner's fire and that he would test the silver or the gold of our lives and, and you know, skim off the dross and the impurities would go on. And Jesus had the same ministry. He was basically the fulfillment of that. As John the Baptist said, he will come uh, and baptize with fire. And, uh, and that fire is designed to purify us. And God says, I want you to put me through that fire too. Test me. It's the same word um, that's used, the refiner's fire and, and the testing, the same root word, I should say. And, uh, and so God says, I want, I'm, I'm welcoming this. I'm, I, want you to, I want you to prove me faithful in this and see and have evidence in your life that if you trust me with this 10%, that I'm going to provide for you. And it's, it's an indication of, God's faithfulness in our lives. So, you know, that's what the tithe is, um, is this 10% given to the Lord uh, as an, you know, a, an act of faith. That everything belongs to him, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, uh, by faith, give this 10%. And I'm not going to dwell on the whole uh, doctrine of tithing or the 10% or whatever. I want to refer you to this. And if you want more information about tithing, uh, that's why we put these brochures in your bulletins today. This, I think, is a helpful summary um, and it expresses Tabernacle's position on the tithe, on offerings, on, you know, what happens if I can't tithe, I've got all these other debts, etc. You know, what is faithfulness? What does discipleship look like? Read this. If you've got further questions, obviously come and, and follow up, etc. Um, but this is where I want to go uh, after mentioning the tithe. That Basically, the people are saying, hey, listen, how do we rob you? And God says, basically, that you're not trusting me. And you're withholding, you're embezzling things that don't belong to you. That everything that you have was given to you. And as you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he asks the question to, to that church, what do you have that you did not receive? So if everything in our life is a gift, and if he says that, hey, everything ultimately is under his lordship, that puts us in a unique position of trustee. That puts us actually in a position of a steward rather than an owner. That he owns all things, and he is Lord of our lives, and he's Lord of the possessions in our lives, and he gives us all these things, and we're to use them faithfully as evidence of where our hearts are, of what our primary allegiance is. Is it to God or is it to other things, and even to material things and so on? 
So God's trying to, to in a loving way, telling his people, I've loved you, and I, I don't want you to settle for this superficial re, uh, religion. I want your heart. And that's why he says, bring your, you know, you, you could rephrase it, bring your whole heart before the Lord. Um, so here's a question. Why does God command the tithe? Why does he say to bring a tenth? Uh, why does he say that he wants our money? Is it because he's kind of hard up? Um, does God need a loan? Is 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 he uh, is he short this month? Does he need just a payday? And, you know, something to bridge the gap. You know, we'll bring the title and so on. Why is it? I mean, obviously, right? He's he's not in any need. So what's the tithe about? What is what are our offerings about? It's not for him. It's for us. I don't know if you've kind of connected those dots yet. I think that that can be an aha moment for some folks when they realize, well, you're, you know, yeah, God is not one of those people standing at the bottom of the exit ramp saying, I'm really hard up. I need help. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he owns everything, and yet he's asking for our money. It's for us. It's a way to pursue our hearts. It's a way to test us and to entrust us. Um, you know, the fundamental thing that I think is fantastic is, is when we think about money as a test, uh, so far, and I hope it continues uh, this way in our country, on every piece of currency are the words, in God we trust. You know, right down the back of, you know, my 20 here. And it's testing our faith. Do we believe that God is going to take care of us? Or do I have to go through my life just you know, doing everything in my power to provide for myself because I really, you know, when it comes right down to it, I don't know if God's very reliable. I have this sneaking suspicion that he's asleep at the wheel and that, you know, the the sky is going to fall and if I don't provide for myself and if I don't scrape together enough resources and if I don't don't start hoarding stuff for a rainy day, uh, everything's going to come crashing in. It's no way to view God, is it? You know, there's this weird um, relationship. You would think, wouldn't you, that the more money that we have, the, the, the less anxious we could be about that rainy day or when the sky seems to be falling in, that, that the more money you have, the more generous, the more free you would be with that. Do you know that that's not the case? There was an article in the New York Times two years ago um, called The Charitable Giving Divide. And, uh, and it says this, for decades, surveys have shown that upper-income Americans don't give away as much of their money as they might and are particularly undistinguished as givers when compared with the poor, who are strikingly generous. A number of other studies have shown that lower-income Americans give proportionally more of their incomes to charity than do upper-income Americans. So here's, here's the for instance. Those that make $25,000 or less uh, average salary give an average of 4.2%. Those who make $75,000 or more give an average of 2.7%. Why? What's going on there? Why is it that somebody making $25,000 is going to give $1,050 away and somebody making... 75,000, three times that amount, is only going to give $3,000 away. The tithe would suggest $7,500, 
just as a, as a sort of a minimum standard, just to express, you know what, God, you've, you've given me everything. Here's 10% back. I trust you. There's something really, really powerful, very, very magnetic about things and about money and putting our trust in our money. You know, frankly, I think those who don't have a lot, they're not under that spell as powerfully as, as some of us who have more. It's not as enticing. They already know, hey, I'm, I'm living on a shoestring. You know, hey, you are too. And, and it seems like it always works out. So here, here's some. But the more we get, the more we think, I'm gonna, this, is, this is what I've done. This is my stuff. And I'm going to hoard this. I'm going to keep it to myself. And we actually get less generous, which is crazy. So what's up with that? Well, you know, Jesus is saying things about our money like, um, you know, don't, where our treasure is, that's where our hearts are going to be. Um, I do want to mention just a couple of things. There is nothing wrong with enjoying God's gifts. And, uh, and for those of you who do have more, I will, I will say this. A, a vow of poverty is not the answer to, you know, oh, what do I do about wealth? Some people take a vow of poverty and God's pleased with that. Do you know that other people can take a vow of poverty and God isn't honored at all? Because they're trying to prove that they're worthy. They're trying to prove that it's still about them. They're trying to still earn God's favor by what they do with their money. Nobody earns God's favor with their money. Whether you give it away or whether you keep it. The only way that we're going to be favorable in God's eyes is when we give our hearts to him. When we respond to his love. He loved, and that's why we love. And he showed it to us on the cross. In 1 Timothy 6, God says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's not a godless attitude to give thanks and to enjoy his gifts as long as, and here's where it continues, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of a life that is truly life. Therefore, money is a test. Test me in this, and he's testing us. We're going to trust him with that 10% or more. It's also a trust. And by what, what I mean by that is, what do you do with the other 90%? What's our attitude toward when he says, hey, you can keep this? Is it ours? Let me ask you a question. Is your money yours? Well, yes and no. You've worked. You earned a paycheck. You know, it's a wage, and so it's a, it's a check, and it comes to you because you put in the time. But as a Christian... We've got a bigger perspective. We recognize that God has ownership over everything. And in that sense, I'm a steward. And that 90%, it actually belongs to him. And he's entrusted it to me, to you, to honor him and to bless your neighbor. So if you're a household and you've got you know, a family to support, you're using that money, that income, to provide for them, to bless them, to protect them, and to, to care for the needs of your neighbors who happen to be either you know, your spouse, your kids, whoever lives with you. If you're a single person, you know, you're using your money to take care of yourself so you don't become a burden for somebody else, and to bless your neighbor. And you can do that in all kinds of ways. But let me make it clear. God has given you what you have in order to glorify him and to love your neighbor. 
That's why you have your money. You're a steward. At the end of the day, we're going to stand before him and we're going to give an account of every penny. Everything. Why did you spend that? Why did you give that? Why did you keep that? And, we, and with a clear conscience, with thanksgiving, the gospel is teaching us, I, I do this because I love you, I want to love my neighbor, I want to provide for my family, I want to enjoy the gifts you've given me. Can you do that with a clear conscience? Do you understand the, the dynamics of money and giving and the gospel? Um, it is a trust. Let me, let me point out to, to you what uh, Jesus says in Luke 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, you know, that's a question for us. Who are we serving? Are we serving the Lord with our money? Or are we serving the money? Um, All right, so this brings us to this whole idea of of life or loss, uh, depending upon Jesus. Um, Luke has a lot to say about money, where, where Jesus is talking about our possessions. And here's where he talks about our treasure in Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells us, don't be afraid, little flock. I love those terms of endearment. Don't be afraid. Little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exalted, exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this gospel equation for figuring out where my heart is. You want to know where your heart is? It's where your treasure is. The crazy thing is that some of us probably don't exactly know where my treasure is. Where's your treasure? Where, where are you putting stock? Where's the capital of your life? Do you, do you know where that is? Um, um, let me give you a, um, somewhat of a clue. If you're, if you're struggling with, I don't, I don't know if I, can, if I have a quick answer to that. Do you know where your treasure is? Your treasure is wherever you're afraid of losing. Whatever you've got under a padlock, whatever you're so concerned that somebody's going to take away, that's where your treasure is. That's where your heart is, too. That's what you're so afraid to lose. And that's what you're holding on to with this white-knuckle grip instead of just trusting Jesus with. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And if you're afraid of losing X, Y, or Z, pay attention to that. See what makes you really, really angry if it gets threatened. That's a great litmus test for where your treasure is. What am I angry about? What am I afraid of? And then, you know, pray and figure that out, sort that out with the Lord. And then if you need to repent, repent. But if you can say, my treasure is where no thief can break in, no damage can occur by rust or by moth or whatever, blessed are you. Nobody can take that away. It can't ever be ruined. And the only way to have an outlook like that is to say, without a shadow of a doubt, my treasure is in heaven. My treasure is a person, not a possession. My treasure is Jesus, who is my pearl of great price, 
And I am giving everything in my life over to him. And I am pouring everything in my life in his service. Because he takes good care of me. That's a way to look at, you know, at, at life and loss through Jesus. Because otherwise, frankly, without Jesus, life is loss. Um, I wanted to uh, read to you a, a section of this book by uh, an author named Anne uh, Voskamp. And uh, let me find the, the passage here. She's... Um, this is a journal, basically, or meditations about uh, a list that she began uh, developing on a dare about, hey, write a list of 1,000 blessings, 1,000 things that you're thankful for. Have any of you seen this book or read this book? Do you know, you know this book? Get familiar with this book. It's fantastic. Um, here's what she writes. She says, very candidly and soberly, please, please listen, life is loss. Life is loss. Every day, there's this gnawing. What will I lose? Health? Comfort? Hope? Eventually, I'm guaranteed to lose every earthly thing I've ever possessed. When will I lose? Today? In a few weeks? How much time have I got before the next loss? Who will I lose? And that's definite. I will lose every single person I've ever loved. Either abruptly or eventually, all human relationships end in loss. Am I prepared for that? Every step I take forward in my life is a loss of something in my life, and I live the waiting. How and of what will I be emptied It's kind of sobering, right? Do you believe that? Or are you under this spell that somehow, someway, I'm going to cheat death. I'm going to cheat the great equalizer. I'm going to cheat that which brings me full circle, as Job described. I came into this world naked, and that's the same way I'm leaving it, with nothing. And folks, without Jesus, that's all you have to look forward to. Nothing. This life is a lab. It's a lab experiment. We're learning what it means to not put our hope in possessions, but to have the life that's really life. Paul um, Paul told Timothy, for we brought nothing into the world We can take nothing out of it. But with Jesus, when our hope is in him, everything becomes a gift that at the end of all things, with an eternal perspective, brings it full circle to where we actually lose nothing. We gain everything. This is what, uh, you know, Anne's kind of completing the cycle of her thought. And she says, um, you know, that, that this is the way the Holy Spirit kind of Related to her. You may suffer loss, but in me is anything ever lost, really? Isn't everything that belongs to Christ also yours? Loved ones lost still belong to him. Then aren't they still yours? Aren't then all provisions in Christ also yours? If you haven't lost Christ, child, nothing is ever lost. 
If you haven't lost Christ, nothing is ever lost. Where Jesus was saying where, where your heart is, you know, that's, that's where your, your treasure is. Um, before that, when he said, hey, don't be afraid, little flock. For your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. That's what he means when he says that if we have Christ, then we have everything. Because the Father has given us the kingdom. Those who are in Christ who have received the greatest of all gifts, that of Jesus Christ, we, along with him, get everything else. And so we don't have to be afraid of loss. We can have open hands with this life, and whatever the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, that's what Job said. I'm going to get it back. You're going to get it back in an eternity of blessing. Don't be afraid. Don't give in to anxiety. Don't give in to anger. Don't give in to all the stress that this world encompasses because they're so afraid of losing. They're so afraid of what they know secretly, inwardly, is going to be the end where they will leave this world naked and alone and empty. But in Jesus we're filled. And in Jesus we're the little flock. The Father loves to give the kingdom to. He is pleased to bless you with these things. Paul was talking about his view of the Christian life. And he said, you know, I used to think of life in this way, and now I'm, uh, it's completely turned upside down. I used to find my hope in my things and my accomplishments and, you know, my pedigree and my, um, my resume. All of those things were what I was living for. And in a modern sense, you know, maybe it's your bank account, maybe it's your retirement, maybe it's your position, maybe it's some, you know, the number of kids or, you know, um, how your house looks or what you drive or whatever. You know, all these things that are eventually going to be taken away in this life. Paul says that's not the way to live. That those who hope in Christ gain everything. Those who have Christ have everything. Paul says, for me... To live is Christ, and to die, this world would say is loss. Paul says is gain. To die is gain. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I believe, I I really fundamentally believe, those of you at Tabernacle, you want to live authentic expressions of Christianity. Nobody here wants to be uh, inconsistent or a hypocrite. None of us do. And so if we're going to mature as disciples, we have to view our money this way. We have to view everything this way. Why? Because that's what Paul says. This is what I want to end with. He says in Philippians 3.15, all of us who are mature, you want to be mature in Christ, you want to be a disciple, should take such a view of things. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless us with such a view of things, not just things in the, in the sense of what, are, what things are true, but, but things in terms of what things are concrete and material, our possessions, our, our money, um, you know, all the things that you've blessed us with. We're so grateful for the gifts that you've given us. Thank you for all the ways that you're expressing your love to us. Um, please help our hearts stay open and soft uh, and generous as you have been so generous with us to give us your son. 
I'm going to pray that the gospel would shape our giving. Pray that Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for us would teach us not to hold on to, uh, to, to things imagining that we have life through them, but that our life is only through Jesus. And that we are called to love our neighbor with our stuff as an expression of our hearts. I pray you'd help us to this end. In Jesus' name, amen.